So my, my ten conclusions were, uh, God has designed a purpose for our appearance. Those who say coverings or hair length are not for today have the burden of proof. We are in an extreme minority in church history if we see coverings or hair length as controversial. This text is about both sexes. Hair isn't the covering. Coverings are not 24-7. Coverings illustrate headship, not just gender differences. Gender roles, head coverings, and hair length stand or fall together. They're intertwined in the text. Uh, Gender roles, head coverings, and hair lengths were not cultural instructions. And traditions reference handed down teachings meant to continue on as given. And I uh, was transparent about answers I don't have, uh, which, you know, I selected a few. Um, there are more. But <laughs> the two big ones are what's the definition of praying and prophesying found in the text? And who did Paul have in mind, married men and women or all, males and females? And then my final analysis, the Lord had or has ordered his church for all generations. God wants men and women to act like it and to look like it. And instructions for gender roles, hair lengths, and coverings in 1 Corinthians still apply to the church today. And then my, in my confession of inconsistency at the end, that basically what it, what it came down to for me to end it, when you make application, I was telling Jerry Bowman this, it basically looked to me like you either have to be insistent or inconsistent. Insistent that everybody do this all the time the way that you, you interpret it, or be inconsistent in your application by saying, this is what I think it's saying, but I'm not going to force anybody to do anything. And I opted for inconsistent <laughs> um, over insistent. I didn't see a third way. And... Uh, inconsistent isn't the best way to go, but for now, that's what I was most comfortable with because, again, I'm still in process and figuring these things out. So, anyway, that's, in a nutshell, what was said this morning from up front. So, um, go ahead and start firing stuff at out at me. And, actually, why wouldn't they tell the Gentiles that's important when they told them, okay, you must do these things? In, so, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15... The Gentiles were given instructions on how to live at peace with the Jews in the church. Mm. Um, this wasn't a, a practice that was given in Israel, as far as we can see in the Old Testament. So there's nowhere in the Old Testament you can go to and say, see, it says right here women are to cover during prayer and prophecy and men are to uncover. It doesn't say that. It seems to be a new practice for the church in some ways, um, perhaps in most ways. So it appears as though it wasn't like this is a Jewish-Gentile conflict at all. This was just a church practice that was revealed to the apostles who then gave it to the churches, and Paul said all the churches were doing it. So churches that were full of Jews and Gentiles, that they were, they were doing. Um, I'll throw out Amy's first question first. I think it's simpler than the second one. Um, she asked, does this in any way fall under work? And I'm assuming she means a work, like uh, working for salvation or something. Uh, I would say no. I mean, it's no different than communion, baptism, singing, giving, serving, exercising spiritual gifts in the church. I don't think it's any different than those things. Uh, now, those things are technically works, but we, don't, we know we're not doing those for salvation. We're not doing those to earn favor with God. But those are actions that take place in the assembly of God's people, um, not as 
we're earning anything from God, but we're reflecting something about the truth of God's design. So in, in one sense, it's a work, but in the other sense, it's not, not a work. So I wish she was here to ask a follow-up question, but that's my, my answer. In your study, did you, were you able to identify a reason for the shift between people accepting this culturally and then not well, 100 years, 60 years ago? So I didn't want to bring this up for a couple reasons. One, because I'm not, like, I don't think this is super solid, but I'm pretty confident in it. But number two, it would kind of distract from the text during the sermon. But I, th- I think the reason why this faded out was because of cultural shifts in the West. So, for instance, right now, you can go to churches around the world, and you'll find many churches that still practice this. Like Eric Mock, who was our men's conference speaker a couple of years ago, he regularly goes to Russia on missions trips. And so I, I reached out to him, and I said, so what, what do they do over there? And he said, oh, yeah, women, long hair and veils. That's just what they do. And men are, they pick off their caps you know, or whatever they're only wearing. Only during church or only during prayer? I didn't ask him about the specifics of it, but it was very much a part of their church culture. Um, and so anyway, you can go to lots of churches around the world and you'll find different uh, frequencies too, but you'll also find a lot of churches practice this to one degree or another. And it seems to me that in the West, the cultural shifts that took place starting in the 20s and then especially getting into the 60s, um, you had... Uh, hairstyles changing dramatically, the bob haircut for the first time, you know, coming into uh, and being in vogue in the 1920s. And then you go into the world wars and you've got Rosie the Riveter type of messaging happening, women, more women going to work. And you've got the feminist movement just falling around the heels of that and women saying, you can't tell me what to wear, you can't tell me what to do. I mean, we know that gender roles have been under attack for a long time in the church. Uh, but... At some point, the church just gave up this practice. There was a time in America where the vast majority of churches practiced this, and then they didn't. So that's, that's my view of it, of, of what's happened. Um, and I would also add to that, too, when you think of gender roles and hair lengths and head coverings, I think head coverings is the easiest thing to start with. If we're looking at dismantling that whole thing, because I, I do think those three issues are tied together in Paul's argument, and if you want to dismantle the gender roles, you don't start there. You would start with the head coverings and then just move backwards. <laughs> and I think that's what's been happening. Uh, you know, I, I was talking to a friend this week, and he said, how have we missed it? If this is the case, how have we just missed it? And I think it's because for most of us, maybe all of us, we've never been in a church where head coverings were practiced. And so... A generation, two generations before us, it stopped being practiced. And, um, okay, now what about, who's to say, if you take that away, who's to say anything about haircuts then, or hair lengths? Who's to say anything about that? Okay, and then if you take that away, who's to say anything about the roles? I mean, you just kind of move gradually that direction. And that's really what we see under fire. You look at the Southern Baptist Convention right now and the uh, PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, they're all dealing with gender role issues it's kind of at the forefront. And yeah, you take away part of Paul's argument, why not take a little more and then take a little more? So I think that's a lot of what's been going on. But uh, again, can't say with absolute certainty, but it seems to me that's what's happening. So you just say that analytically, looking back in history, like yeah. 
we put it on this and then yeah, and I mean, and to me that makes sense. I mean, because yeah. the the head coverings thing, when you have more more and more women going to work, they're not wearing a head covering at work, right? This is for prayer, prayer and prophesying. You know, they're not wearing Rosie the Riveter maybe had a bandana or something on her head or something like that. But you know, more and more they're in the workplace and everything, and they're not wearing church attire when they go to work, and so then they start going to church and. Not they're just wearing what they would wear to when they go to work. It seems to me that's what was happening. I can't say that authoritatively, didn't live through it, but it's just one possible deduction from my observation. I found the term you just used interesting, church attire. Yeah. So would a head covering be church attire? I do believe that Paul only has the assembly, the assembling of God's people in view. So one of the strongest reasons for that, there are multiple, but I think maybe the strongest is when Paul says in verse 16, uh, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So he views it as a church practice. Uh, that's, I think, maybe the strongest reason, uh, but there are a few other things in the text that would indicate that also. And of course he goes right into the Lord's Supper. Seems like it would be on the same theme, what's happening in the gathering of God's people. I wonder if some of it, Jeremy, is from the cause of the King James, New King James, that we got away from it. Because King James was predominant yeah. in this country for a long time. Like where it says ordinance instead of well, tradition? Or New King James, and the King James says the church has no such right. custom. Yeah. And that's, actually, that's where I left it when I... I've probably read this three or four times at least yeah. before. And, uh, you know, when I read through it, and, and I read through it, and, you know, and I thought the same thing. Why did Paul spend half a chapter talking about it? Right. And I had a theory about that. But I just never bothered to check out the wording until you, well, you said it. And I went home and checked another translation. Yeah. Um, it says, does the others, as far as I know, the King James and New King James are the only ones that says no such customs. The others say no other customs. So this is uh, from Tom Schreiner, who doesn't take my view. He puts it in the same category as the Holy Kiss. And he says, in verse 16, Paul concludes his argument by saying, but if, any, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. He goes on to say, Now some have said that Paul actually rejects the wearing of head coverings by women with these words because the Greek literally says we have no such practice. And thus they conclude that the practice of wearing head coverings is renounced here by Paul. But such an understanding is surely wrong. Paul in this verse is addressing the contentious who, the previous context makes clear, do not want to wear a head covering. The practice of certain Corinthian women who refuse to wear a head covering is what Paul refers to when he says we have no such practice. Thus he says to the contentious that both the apostolic circle, we, and the rest of the churches adhere to the custom of head coverings. The instructions Paul has given reflect his own view of the matter and the practice of the other churches. Those who see this advice as limited only to the Corinthian situation have failed to take this verse seriously enough. Paul perceives his instructions here as binding for all churches. Indeed, the other churches already adhere to the practice Paul recommends here. And that's, you know, it's interesting, the vast majority of the commentators I read, 
Um, you know, I read several. Not all of them came to the same conclusion as me. The majority of them didn't. But the vast majority of them still um, agreed on a lot of the same points. It's just, then they just say a lot of them. It's just, it's cultural. And I'm just left there looking at the text and looking at history and saying, show me anything that says it's cultural. And that, that has been so frustrating for me because these are guys I respect, I love listening to. And I can't say that it's cultural because nothing I've found has shown me that. And all you've got to do is say, can you give me some references? And then they say, eh, well, it's holy kiss, and then they move on. And I just think that's a really, really weak argument. I'm not familiar enough with history to know, but you know some of the other the Arab and stuff. Their women have to wear the coverings and stuff. And if they were saying it's cultural that we got it from them or something like that, but I, this seems like it's probably before. Yeah. All of that. So I, I, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. And again. When does Paul ever say, hey, church, when you get together, do this thing that the pagans are doing? Yeah. I just can't buy into that. So. No, I just meant as far as people saying it was culture. Right, yeah. It, I don't know if it was or not, but it seems to me like this is early enough that people wouldn't have been influenced by the Arabs or anybody else. Mm-hmm. Well, the other question I had, I think we already touched on it, though, but maybe I'll elaborate, is just the coverings are not 24-7. Mm. Um, and I know my wife asked, you know, if we're, if we're instructed to uh, be continually in prayer, uh, how does that apply? But I think, you know, you just answered it with part of verse 16 there. But do you have more on that that you could talk to? Yeah, and that is a um, something that you'll hear from more Mennonite or Amish crowds who are on the other end of the spectrum, right? So now we're swinging the other way. Um, they not only practice it, they practice it 24-7. And they'll say, yeah, well, it says pray without ceasing. So there you go. Uh, it should be worn 24-7. Well, I, I can't remember who said this. If it was, I think it was Milton Vincent. He said, well, that means you can't pray in the shower then. <laughs> right? Because you got to take your covering off to wash your hair, and that means you can't pray if you're a woman in the shower. I got head caps. <laughs> so, or, or while you're swimming or whatever. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, that's a, a failed argument for a few reasons. Um, it does, again, it does seem to be a church practice because the context of chapter 11 is what's happening in the local assembly. I don't see this. John MacArthur actually takes the view that prayer and prophecy means when you're out evangelizing. He sees it as when you're outside of the church. I think that's wacky. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't want to fire too many shots at John MacArthur. God might strike me down. But uh, it's just, um, does he practice that? Well, no, because he says it's it's also cultural. So it was a cultural custom for outside of the church, and he kind of pushes it back to chapters nine and ten that this was uh, something that they would do to win the culture, essentially to become all things, all people outside of the local assembly. Uh, but I think that is a really tough argument uh, from the text because Paul doesn't say that at all. In fact, he says quite the opposite in his argumentation. So anyway, yeah, um, it does seem to be a church practice because praying and prophesying takes place in the assembly. Um, yeah, I wouldn't see it as 24-7. Well, if, 
look back, the men were preaching and uh, praying in church, and I could see a woman say, I don't need to wear one, I'm not going to teach, I'm not going to preach or pray, I'm just going to go there and yeah. worship. And they say, I don't need a big job. Yeah. Yeah, so defining that phrase, praying and prophesying, is the the real necessity of the moment. Um, yeah, I, I think and, and again the, the symmetry of all this, of the, the symmetry of the text is really vital. So you think about what we naturally expect from men in church and what, how men naturally function on this. You don't see I don't think in our church very much, at least. You don't see guys wearing hats until it's time to pray, and then they take it off and they put it back on while they're sitting there. It's like, okay, it's a church day. I'm just going to leave my hat in the truck or whatever, and they go in and leave. And so I think in a lot of ways that is probably, if we're looking at this as a church practice to be upheld today, that's probably the um, I don't know, best way to, to practice it because it's more of a catch-all that way. It is, it is very interesting to me how we've upheld the men uncovering but not the women covering. Isn't that bizarre? If we had a men's breakfast or something here on a Saturday and a bunch of guys had hats on, we just, when it's time to pray, all guys would take their hats off. We just do it. But we don't see that happening with women putting something on. It's just really interesting to me. So, um, yeah. When I was real. Yep. That Logan was saying his grandpa was that way. <laughs> My grandpa. <laughs> Even at home? In grocery store? In, wherever. in the army? <clears throat> at home, especially. Huh. You use it for shade. If you need one. <laughs> and in the army, you were talking to, when you go inside, you take the hat. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I assume they still teach that. Yeah, yeah. they. Yeah, my years. friends are very militant about that. Especially when they're in full uniform or in their, in their, their dress or get up for uh, an event. They're very serious about that still. Even in the teeth. Keep us on track. I want to go back to what he said. So, men are taking off their hat to pray. Women are supposed to put their coverings on. When we're done praying, it comes off. Well, again, um, I think the, applic the application of this um, can look at it in a variety of ways. So, for instance, um, comparing it with communion and baptism, I think, is really helpful. With communion, what do we see in the book of Acts? How, how do they practice communion? Daily. So we look at that, okay, we're supposed to practice communion daily. What are we doing? Doing it once a month. Pray without ceasing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, so I think there's... Freedom in application, but not to the point where it's like, well, let's just totally ignore it. Um, so, f I, and I just don't know. I can't answer the question of does that mean it's a toggling thing where it's toggled on, toggle off? Beca because I do think there's significance in that. I do. Because he is talking about prayer specifically. Um, but entering into knowing it's a ministry setting, okay, here I am going in on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whatever it is, women's breakfast. I'm just going to have it on. I think. 
to me, that seems totally fine too. It's not like Paul gets that granular with it. So I think we could really lose ourselves if we try to get that granular with it. Yeah. Yeah. What else? If I'm going to keep doctrine in its place, yeah, right. Where would it fall in on this chart? I was going to ask that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, again, draw it in there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> as a reminder, at the end of the sermon, I did part of my inconsistency. My the major part of my inconsistency is I can't sit back and say someone's objectively in sin or not in sin on this issue. Um. Because there are, I mean, just by nature, the fact that we're having this meeting to ask these questions and kick these things around show that the application is unclear. Okay. Uh, now, again, that's not to say this is not valid, that, well, it's just erase it. It's still there, and we still have to face it, and we still need to apply it in some way. So it seems to me right now, I would probably put it in the secondary column. It would be in methodology. It would be in practice. Um, that's where I would put it for now. And I'm pretty comfortable with that. I wouldn't put if it... If I had to lean one way or the other, would it be further to that side or that side? Stop doing that. <laughs> it's like we're on the podcast. No. Engage me. <laughs> no, it, things don't lean. They're either there or they're not. There. <laughs> I don't know. I can watch some of those. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, because we talked through that with a tweener's episode, like losing your salvation. If you believe you can lose your salvation, are you a heretic? Are you going to hell if you believe that? Well, okay, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, that one's like in between the first and second. Okay, and so, I, but this right now, I'm just comfortable saying. Let's call Ken. Let's ask him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's he's been on the journey with me. We've been talking a lot about this the last couple of weeks. So. Right, that's what I was wondering. I was thinking one of those two. I, I would not put it in doubtful, and I wouldn't be comfortable say saying okay, it's leaning doubtful because Paul does not present it as doubtful. He presents vegetarianism. In a much different way than he presents this. Okay. So I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. And at the same time, not comfortable saying objectively it's sinful or not sinful or whatever. So. Okay. Thank you. So the way we grew up, it was pretty much primary doctrine. And, and that, I, I don't believe that way. Mm-hmm. I mean. So without it, you're not saved. Yeah, pretty much. You go to a church that don't support it, that don't do it, you know, you're headed down the wrong path. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my parents would have definitely said that. And yeah, and so the question then becomes, if we're going to go that way, anybody, we would have to look at a lot of churches we respect and glean from and learn from and say that they're wrong. And boy, that just, something has to be extremely clear to make yeah. that statement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My thing is like when, so our church, where we come from, they would have uh, made everybody do it. You know, I mean, different churches. Yeah, at school age, the girls put it on, and and it became such a when man puts something, when man gets on a track, after like three or four generations, it becomes something different, in my opinion. It's something that never was meant to be. Yeah. And then it just keeps going that way. Well, and wouldn't you say, too, a lot of people in the Mennonite tradition, at least with your experience, they've never thought as deeply about this passage as we've been thinking about it today? Well, they never had to. Yeah. It was figured out for them, and they don't really know why they stand on the way they do. 
Because that's, that's something we don't want to make it mindless. Just like with communion. We don't, and that's what we've said traditionally. Is the reason why we do communion once a month is so it won't be mindless. I don't know how good of a reason that is. Uh, I don't know if that correlates exactly, but the fact remains we never want communion to be mindless, right? We never want baptism to be mindless. We never want our singing to be mindless. We never we'll want we'll any... Sing once a month. <laughs> yeah, we'll sing. Well, I'll preach once a month because we don't want it to be mindless. You know, uh, but, but the fact remains, though, we want to be thoughtful and biblical in all these things and not just do it because it's, it's uh, what everyone else has done or whatever. We wash feet when we do communion. Yeah. Literally. Yep. And the you did your did your tradition see the whole? So just wash. <laughs> put your feet in a pail, and they'd sit on the chair, put their feet in a pail, and you'd wash it, and then you'd sweep around. So the more predominant Amish Mennonite group around where I grew up saw foot washing, the beard, the holy kiss, all as ordinances. The beard, I've never. Okay. But um, the Holy Kiss, your group? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's, it kind of faded. It kind of fades. Yeah. Uh, we never. With the rise of homosexuality. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Why? some of the older men made sure they hit you on the lips. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's, that's why. That's weird. Yeah. Hey. It's like, why? I can taste your lunch. Oh, no. no thanks. Did COVID change that? Yeah. I doubt yeah, and to me, that is just such a separate category. And yeah. to someone like Tom Schreiner, who I really respect in a lot of ways, for him just to say, he makes great, a great argument, sees the text pretty clearly throughout, and then, yeah, it's like the holy kiss. What? We just, <laughs> there's so much here that you'd never have with the holy kiss passages. Like, it's, it's definitely different. I, I don't know, it's frustrating to me. You might make think about it all <laughs> okay. Before, before I just took the last <coughs> I said, well, he went through all that just to explain what was going on and that he understood and to say we don't practice that. Mm-hmm. But now I got to think over it. Yeah. Well, I, and it's, it's to my shame, I, my whole life just, mm-hmm. well, my whole Christian life, well, it's cultural. It's just what you, what you say. And out of all the arguments you can make against it, that's the worst one. I mean, the more I studied and looked at that, I thought, what have I been saying to myself? That is just, it's just a lie. It really is. Um, nothing backs that up. The text doesn't back it up. History doesn't back it up. Literature doesn't back it up. Nothing backs it up. Logic doesn't back it up. Is it a, does, does Paul make any other references like that to any of this other stuff? Like, I mean... The first at the end, it's not a disclaimer, but it's a whatever you want to call it. That says if there's any, if anybody is contentious. There's mm. other teachings, you know, I don't remember ending anything else. Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> let me see. One of these big books I brought over here. Um, it's just curious to me why he would end it in that manner. Well, apparently he anticipated something specifically from the Corinthians because yeah. none of the other churches were being contentious. Yeah. So it had to be... expecting some reaction or something. He's kind of saying, this is it. Right. <laughs> yeah. That um, seems to come from verse 2 and 3, right? Where he's saying, I praise you, da, 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 but I want you to understand. And then he points that out. 
Right. So he's he's praising them, but saying, "Guys, you are you're way off on this." So I read that. Maybe they were starting to slip in an area. Um, let me see. In sixteen one, when he's talking about giving, he says concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Oh, good. Makes reference to other churches. What was that again? What do you say? Sixteen one. Well, that's inclusion, not exclusion. Well, according to, this isn't the best source. It's all I can do with the Greek right now, but, uh, well, not all I can do. And first, the word for contentious, that's the only time that that specific word comes up in the New Testament. So a Greek concordance doesn't do us a ton of good right there. But yeah, that's a good, good point, Jim. Oh, it was, I think it was certainly one of the traditions, yeah. But traditions are meant to be handed down and carried forth. I don't think traditions, I don't think Paul was saying, I praise you for doing this just for a limited amount of time. I think Paul was... Yeah, second Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions mm-hmm. that you were taught by us. Exactly. And I don't, obviously, we don't have everything that they taught, but God preserved this. So if it's in front of us, we have to deal with it. Yeah, according to another app that I have here, um, the word means to love strife. It's literally combining love and strife uh, for contentious, strife lover. And it's the only time it comes up in the New Testament. Yeah, it does sound like he was anticipating. Yes, most certainly. Hmm. Which I've always read that myself. Um, you know, the way you, I mean, the King James says we have no such practice. And that kind of tends to twist the verse yeah. a little different way. Well, it's because the Greek verbiage, I mean, the, the King James is actually a stronger reflection of the Greek. Um, Grammatically speaking, but not the intention behind it. And so um, that word that's used there is, uh, or the phrase that's used there, it's a good study to do, and there's lots that's been written on it. The vast, I I think all the commentators I read actually, um, and the majority of which don't see the covering for today, they see that verse as saying Paul was telling them they're they're a minority of one if they don't practice this. So, yeah, that seems pretty clear. So how, like, the I think it's very appropriate if, you know, I use the illustration of the young woman in our, women in our church started shaving their heads. I think it's very appropriate to talk to them if that were the case and saying, God gave you your hair for your glory. Yeah. Um, you are actually fighting against God's design for you if you desire to cut your hair short or shave it, according to verse 6, his two phrases there. Those are two different words. Cutting it close to the head, or that word for shaved, it's actually the word for shearing. It's the the same term. Um, Paul sees that as unnatural, and I think we would do well to adopt that view and not just say, well, you know, it could be this or it could be that. Paul's not saying anything about the culture. He's saying what God's given them, so... 
But again, you know what I said toward the end too, he doesn't define what's long and he doesn't define what's short. So we, we would be way off base if we said, okay, this many inches of hair and we walked around with the ruler, you know, and did that. I don't think we can do that. It, it does at the end of the day come down to wisdom and to conscience on how, that, how long is long and how short is short. And I would believe in most cases, we know, right? Is that beard, too? <laughs> Doesn't say anything about a beard. <laughs> Get out of control, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't say anything about the beard. I think it's interesting how, you know, he says all the churches do this, where now in our immediate culture, like, none of the churches do mm-hmm. it. And we're reading this going, what? It's, yeah. it's the opposite of what we know here in America. Mm-hmm the churches we affiliate with. That's right. Yeah, but transplant us and put us in Africa, lots of Europe, definitely lots of Asia, and they're doing it. So it is, it is like a Western thing. It does seem like independence, freedom. Yep. My body, my choice. Yep. <laughs> yep. Don't tell me what to do. In your message a couple of times, it seemed like you equated prayer and prophecy and uh, gathering assembly. Is there uh, reasoning behind that? Yeah, so again, I, you know, I think this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about this is a church practice by him bringing up the other churches as a basis for his reasoning. Um, it does seem to be a corporate worship practice that's in view here. So, um, as opposed to those practices isolated within a church service? Yeah, well, no, as opposed to those practices um, taking place in the home. Yeah. Like, Amy's second question here is, you know, what does this have implications to cover our head in prayer at home when you are alone before the angels? Why do you think this is just to be, uh, I don't know what that word is, just to be, oh, practiced uh, for the assembly of the believers? And a lot of my argument would come from verse 16, saying that this is a, a church practice. Um, he defines it as a church practice. But let's see Mr. Gromacki here, if he had a word on that. I read so many commentaries, it's hard to remember where I read everything. But uh, let's see. And when he goes, talks about praying and prophesying, well, I might have to just go back and... To give a fuller answer, I'll just have to spend time and draw out that argument a little more. Well, I wasn't thinking necessarily the church versus home, but uh, singing versus prayer, or Sunday school versus uh, teaching in a somewhat prophetic sense, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it certainly seems safest. I mean, if we're thinking, okay, how can we honor God with this by practicing in the church? It seems to cover all of our bases to say anytime we are in the assembly, uh, we just mind those principles. So a woman teaching other women, a woman teaching children, does that fall under the realm of praying and prophesying? I think it very well could. Again, I have to define that. I have to work on that. Uh, is singing praying? I think in a lot of ways, yeah, it is. You know, in, in one sense, we're admonishing one another. <laughs> in another sense, though, we are singing to God. So... Um, Worship, like the whole church service is a worship. Yeah, yeah. So it does seem like 
um, that is safest if we are looking for, again, this, I don't want to make it sound legalistic. I, when I say safest, it's kind of our mind jumps to legalism. I don't want that to be the case. But as far as looking to honor God, that seems like it would cover the bases. So, yeah. and practically speaking, I, I get that. Right, and, and again, like with the men, they leave their hat in the truck or whatever when they come in. Um, just, I think, instinctively in a lot of ways. So I think the inverse could be true for women in the church. Do you do a search on prophecy and prayer to see if those words are used conjointly anywhere else in that same way? Yeah, um, and there's, you know, people try to make all kinds of cases for all kinds of things. That's not really a strong case that anybody tries to make. The Where that comes in the most is in that second-to-last off-ramp I talked about, <laughs> the defining praying and prophesying as charismatic activity. And you see that in chapter 14, Um Let's see, if you go to 14 and then turn down to, or look down to, um, I mean, really, it starts in verse 4, I guess. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. And so they're saying, okay, look, he's correlating, and really throughout the whole chapter, he's doing this. He's bouncing back and forth between tongues and prophecy, and he's saying, Verse 5, I wish you spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. And he, he kind of talks that way throughout the whole uh, passage. Down in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And so he uh, says in 15, what's the outcome? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. That the ideas, the two ideas seem to be joined together. But that's only if we see in chapter 11 praying is praying in tongues. And I just think that's a stretch. It's not a normal hermeneutical approach. <laughs> it's convenient though. I've always been taught that prophesying is simply proclaiming the word of God. Mm-hmm. In that, I would include reading. Right. If you're reading aloud, yeah, it does depend on context a little bit. So in um, Ephesians 4, when Paul's talking about the offices of the church, and he says, God has given to the church evangelists, or first apostles and prophets, and then pastors, teachers. So pastors and teachers are distinguished from prophets. And so uh, those were two offices in the early church, two distinct offices, and then evangelist. And so not all prophesying was uh, foretelling the Word of God. Some prophecy, of course, was foretelling. And you see that in the book of Acts and other places. So um, I, I don't know if we could even definitively say it's one or the other in 1 Corinthians 11 because he just doesn't define it. You laughed really hard with my line about how do we, how do you know you don't look stupid now? <laughs> I never I never envisioned that as a joke. It was so it, it totally caught me off guard. I thought, oh, that did sound kind of like a joke. Didn't it? So, how do you know you don't look stupid? Now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People that just go with the flow. <laughs> yeah. That's our mm-hmm. tendency. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in a lot of ways it's against our nature to really think critically. But that's what we're called to do. Dory, what questions do you have? I can't even listen to them. Okay, all right. <laughs> You guys got any, anything else? I don't know fully what's next. I just wanted, I just wanted to preach the text and preach Paul's intent. Um, and then from there, just let the chips fall where they may. So, uh, What are you going to do? I, well, I already told you I'm going to do it. You're not going to wear a hat? <laughs> I'm not going not gonna to wear a hat when I teach or pray. Um, in the assembly, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there's more studying that needs to be done. There's more prayer about this that needs to take place. Um, and you know, I can tell you, Melissa either already ordered or, or was getting ready to order some things that would serve as coverings. Um, this is not something I said. This is what we're doing now. I asked her, just like I asked everybody in the church, read through this and think about it. I did give her more specific challenges, though. Like, give me a biblical reason why this doesn't apply today. You know, just study and tell me. And, you know, I was sharing with her as I was learning. And we've come to basically the same conclusions. I think a lot of that is just because we're, you know, spouses. But a lot of it is, too. There are only a few places you can go if you're going to stick with the text. There are commentators and preachers go all over the place. But if you're committed to sticking with the text, <laughs> there are really just two or three options here. And, um, and yeah, if, if you recognize that, then you got to pick one and back it up and live guilt-free before your, your king. So you say you found Milton Vincent to be the most consistent? I thought his was really good. You know, um, he's got a nine-part series. Uh, he was going through 1 Corinthians. It's so funny. You listen to the first one. This is from 2002. They were going through 1 Corinthians, and he hit chapter 11, and he had that Sunday, it was verses 2 through 16. And he was going to preach it, and that was it. And as he studied it, he was like, wow, there's a lot here. So it was a little bit of a longer sermon. And then he, the way he describes it is the conversations he had after the sermon and then going to bed that night. He had trouble sleeping that night and said, we need to spend more time on this. And his view changed through the course of that study. And so it's really fascinating to listen to. And it was, I think, five Sunday mornings and four Sunday nights. And he had people come and ask questions, which I thought was really healthy, really good. And you learn a lot when you listen to that, you know, because they'll think of things that a professional preacher will never think of. And so it's good to think through those things. And he had a lot of information. Each session was between 50 minutes and an hour, I think. And um, I thought he did a very good job, and it's audio, so I could totally share that with you guys if you're interested. Yeah, how do we get that? Um, I'll just include it in an email um, for anybody who wants it. So. Is that that guy from Canada? No, he's, from, he's in Riverside, California. So he's a master's uh, graduate, master's university, John MacArthur's school. Um, and he has written a little book called A Gospel of Primer that's gotten around quite a bit. Um, faithful Bible teacher. He, their doctrinal statement looks exactly like ours. I think it's literally the same doctrinal statement in his church. Um, so definitely our circles. Well, the good part is we're saved by grace and we're 
place. That's right. That's exactly Nobody right. Nobody is condemned because of what we have or have Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And we just be open to learn and, and adjust. And if we ever, what was it? Uh, I don't fully agree with this quote, so I'll qualify it. But I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, if you're finished changing, you're finished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, in sanctification, we're always growing. If we ever think we're, we're done growing, then what are we doing? So we grow, we learn, we adjust as we need to, and be led by the Spirit, live in unity and peace and harmony. And that's the Christian's calling. So. I think the only way we can really do it wrong is we, we try to enforce our individual beliefs on some Yeah. And then it turns into that mindlessness where it's just, we're doing it just because. And that's the danger with the physical symbols we do uphold, like communion and baptism and those other things. Um, like right now, I'm talking through baptism with Jackson. And I, I want to bring it up. I don't want to neglect the teaching in his life. But at the same time, I want him to get it. I don't want to just tell him to do it. I want him to get it. And so it's a really delicate balance. Um, you know, communion is the same way. Singing, you go to lots of churches, I, not ours, praise the Lord, but lots of churches, especially in the Bible Belt, the men stand up, but a lot of them aren't singing. It's like, what are you doing? You know, Martin Luther says, uh, it said, if a guy isn't singing, that shows me he doesn't really believe. You can't help but sing. But you can't go around and force people to sing, okay? Um, and people who just refuse baptism, there's someone in our fellowship who just refuses baptism. I can't just go up and grab them and throw them into a pond, you know? Um, gotcha. Yeah, like on Nacho Libre when he comes up behind him and dunks his head in the bowl. You know, you can't do that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, we, we want to teach these things as this is what the Word of God says, but then you just... You can't force people to do stuff. So, so that's, that was my whole goal with this. I was just teaching it from what I believe it says and let the chips fall where they may from there. So. Are we going to revisit this at a future point? Well, we'll have to when we get to chapter 14. Because in chapter 14, Paul says, uh, I do not permit a woman to speak, or a woman is not permitted to speak in the churches. If she desires to learn anything, uh, ask her husband at home. Well, I've just been saying that prayer and prophecy is what takes place in the assembly. So this is the main reason John MacArthur views it as an activity that takes place outside of the assembly. It's because, well, they were silent in the assembly. Um, I've got my thoughts on what that means. That's down in 34, 1434, something like that. So we will have to in just a few chapters. Yeah. Do you see that as a, a passive activity then? Prayer and prophecy to sit under... Prayer and prophecy to include and involve yourself in that mm. rather than to actively pray and prophesy. Mm, I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, I think there's potential with that view. Um, but no, I hadn't thought of it that way. They are, I believe they're active tense in the Greek. But um, I believe, and I'll just tell you what I'm thinking now. This could change. But in 1434, where uh, he says, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. So the way I harmonize that with 11 for the moment is the context, the verses leading up to that, uh, the context is judging prophecies. You see, the people who prophesy are supposed to do it one by one according to verse 31. 
the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. And then uh, verse 29 also, let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So there's this idea of prophets speaking and then there's a passing of judgment. And I think it has to do mainly with the passing of judgment aspect, uh, that it has to do with the teaching of a prophecy that comes. Because uh, could a woman be a prophet in the early church? Well, yes. Uh, you've got, was it Philip? Seven daughters who were all, or four, da- four daughters who were all prophetesses. So yeah, they could be prophets in the early church. That happened. But when it comes to judging prophecies that Paul talks about here, who was allowed in the assembly to stand up and judge prophecies? I think he's saying only men. But we'll work on that more when we get there. I guess I'm trying to picture it as the, you know, as a picture in my head, and I, I'm not seeing what the what it represents, the head covering and not the head covering. I mean, I, I know what verse 2 says, but how how does the head covering show a not a head covering? Yeah. When it it's, sounds like it's saying the same thing, you know, Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. So I don't... I don't see how those two fit in together. Sure. Yeah, one of the theories on that is the, the man's head is not visible. Christ. Uh, we, we don't see Christ here with us. He's returned and he's at the right hand of the Father. And so by not having anything on his head, that's showing that the man is not under any visible authority on the earth. Whereas a woman, her head is visible. That man is visible. And so she used to have a, a visible symbol that correlates. So that's one theory on that. I don't think that's bad. Okay. Um, there's, what was I going to say after that? Um, uh, sheesh, it may have, may have fallen out of the old coconut there. Uh, if I think of it, I'll bring it up. Okay. That was the main, main thing I thought of, though. Okay. So I wonder sense. when uh, God clothed Adam and Eve there in the garden, <laughs> <laughs> what he did there. <laughs> yeah. Covered their private parts is what he did. <laughs> yeah, sure that. Uh, I know that. Um, yeah, they they had pants. <laughs> well, she had a skirt, of course. But... <laughs> no, we're not going down that road. Um, I thought it was helpful when you talked about uh, how outsiders would view baptism and communion, because mm-hmm. that was one of my thoughts before. Like, what's what's the point if in our culture people don't see a head covering as a symbol of submission or headship, then why is it applicable for us today? But people don't look at communion, and I was taking communion and see, oh, that means that they're right. what communion is. And again, it's not like we're taking communion, it's not like it's out among the culture where we would even be interacting with the culture while we're partaking of communion. It is a teaching it's for the church. It's a that. corporate worship practice. So, yeah, the more I just dwelled on it, it's like, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense. Paul says, I don't allow women to teach or have authority over men. I always thought back to the, the customs, the way they did back then. Quite often, if a young man apprenticed under somebody who is not his father, mm. he went and lived and was basically a servant to that person. Look at Samuel. Uh, you left home and, and, you, and I could see how that would be inappropriate for a young man in that position with a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
whether that's exactly what Paul had in mind, I don't know. Yeah, there are different theories on that um, and what quiet means, obviously. Uh, yeah, when you look at the way Paul taught on these things, you read it in English, especially out of its context where someone just throws the verse out there and it's like, okay, Paul expects a woman to be there but to be totally silent. I don't, I don't think that's what he had in view, that they wouldn't speak. From the moment they walked into the corporate fellowship until they left, they don't open their mouths. I don't think Paul had that in mind. I don't know I could do that. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's right. We'd have a revolt on our hands. Have fun leading the singing ministry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Brittany, you can sing, but don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> But, it, but it, you know, it is interesting, like 1 Timothy 2, like you were just referencing. You know, I wanted to bring that up at the end of the message because I do think it is a huge area of hypocrisy for us when we uphold the gender roles based on a text like that because it's rooted in creation. And then we don't uphold some other things, maybe just, just this one, head covering and hair length, even though it's also rooted in creation. It's like, it's the same argument. And the real danger in this is... Who's to say then, at that point, that we don't do the same thing with human sexuality? Right? Or, again, communion, baptism, etc., etc. Go down the line. Where does it stop? And how can you justify it? Because you could obviously make a great case that homosexuality is fine in our culture. You can make that case because the stats show it. So now does that mean we say, okay, that was cultural? Well, no. It's about God's design. And that's the basis for Paul's reasoning. Now, we, we may not understand all the answers to the uh, why questions, but we can certainly understand the what <laughs> that's presented to us in 1 Corinthians 11. And we, if, if we sit back and say, well, God didn't give us enough details for us to obey, I just think we're in a really bad spot. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to word this without sounding legalistic. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, yeah. Share some of your experience with your circles about that. Well, I mean, some some just do a little doily, what they would call a doily. Yeah. Some would take it as a symbol, so it's all yeah. like a symbol there, just so it's whether something. it's something big bread or something big. And then some people would say it needs to cover the hair. All the hair. Right. Like, yeah. not see any hair. Burka? Oh. Right. Um, and it just differs from there in between. I mean, some people say you just cover the long part of your hair. You wrap it up and cover the long part. And then color is a huge thing for them. Color? Yeah. Nothing well, about that in the text. Yeah. 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 Just, well, because they hear of some satanic rituals that were black. <laughs> oh my again getting your cues from culture it's like what yeah, um, yeah so in those types of settings uh, you know where, where we're from in Missouri um, most of the Mennonite women have the you said coffee filter type right like a yarmulke uh, yeah, yeah kind of like a yarmulke looking thing yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's some people I read, I think it was Alexander Strzok, I mean, I, and I could give you some names of some contemporary people who believed that head coverings were for today that might surprise you. R.C. Sproul, firm believer in that. Charles Ryrie, firm believer in that. Um, 
Alexander Strzok, who wrote the book Biblical Eldership, uh, Joel Beakey, the president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. There are several others. Um, they just don't get platformed because they on that issue because they don't make a huge deal out of it, but they, they teach it. Um, I think it was Strzok who said, if it's even if it's just a, a single thread, you know, the idea of making an effort in that way to apply this today. Um, that's probably, probably wasn't him, and I'm probably butchering the quote, but I do think it is recognizing, okay, God's giving us this instruction, uh, and I can't, it, it relates so much to communion. I think it's a really helpful correlation. You think of those churches where you go and they, you get the little cup and the little chiclet piece of not really bread it's like a foam wafer styrofoam <laughs> and they're they're packaged together and you take it i've always felt a little shortchanged, you know like you put this thing in your tongue and it just dissolves like what is this is this even bread uh but at the same time we're doing it because we've been called to do it and even if that's all we had i think that's okay mm-hmm. so this getting into the details of what it should be i think can maybe make us lose the point too and you start getting into fights about yeah. that kind of right. stuff and you shouldn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well and I, I think it's I a it's a Christian thing that we see each other's faces, so we never wanna, you know, cover well, women's faces. Oh, okay. So obviously they were not covered. Yeah, right. And Peter writes about that, about braiding of the hair. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's good to wrap a beach towel around your face. Because, <laughs> you know, at, at the same time, so the other end of the spectrum, using communion as an example, there are some instances where I just feel like shortchanged, like this symbol is like lame. <laughs> but then there's the other end of... We're all going to get a big old chunk, you know? We're going to make a huge loaf of bread, and we're all going to get a big slice. Uh, yeah, and, and there's a case to be made that that is more biblical. Maybe at their love feast, they had one loaf of bread, and they all pinched off the same yeah, loaf or whatever. Yeah, I think they had slices. Uh, but, yeah, but I don't think I'm, I'm ready to go there either. You know, I one think, cup, too. And I think there's great freedom in it. Uh, so, yeah. At a, at a men's retreat or something, maybe, you know. So I had uh, actual but, wine, I think. Hmm. But uh, so I, I just think there's there's freedom in in that area because it's just not defined, and I I think it's so terrible that some people take the it's not defined aspect and then use that as a reason to negate the practice. Yeah, it's like uh, that is just goofy to me. Uh, I don't think there's any basis for that. When I see a people doing it, but then they they miss the whole the whole thing of what it's teaching here. And they're so focused on the size and mm-hmm. the color of it. And, and if it's going to offend grandma or if it's going to offend grandpa and all that stuff, it just makes me shake my head. And I would almost rather use the hair as a covering, go back to that, than see what's happening in some of these settings with the covering. Because I think it's taking it way out of yeah. yeah. And, and that is a valid concern, too, because it's like, well, now, if it becomes a thing, doesn't that become a distraction or a source of pride or a source of um, 
holier than thou because I'm doing it right, you know, and you're not. Well, yeah, yeah, if that's the case, if that's ever the case, then you're doing it for the wrong reason, and God will judge you for that. Uh, God, you'll have to answer for that um, if it becomes a source of pride. Um, that's right, because because what because what does the symbol represent? It represents being in humble submission under your authority. <laughs> so if it becomes a pride thing, it's the exact opposite of what it's intended to be, and God knows the heart. And that's why I wanted to say this morning too that you know if a, if a woman isn't in submission to her husband, don't do it, because then you're just lying, because that's what it means. Uh, so, but if you have that heart and have that approach to life and do view your marriage the right way, I think Paul's ideal is that both things would be happening, not just one. Reading over this chapter this week, it just made me see all the more, it pounded in my head more, the, the headship order and that I, and God is, you know, over me and I'm over Dory yep. and my family. Yep. And it just put more of a burden on me that I need to be uh, yeah, who I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. in leading and mm-hmm. fulfilling that. Yes. And I think this does a lot for our, it's called natural theology in the study of theological things. As you look around the world and see male and female dynamics, we have a lot in 1 Corinthians 11 that tells us about the world and the way God has designed things to be. And I think this helps us in our worldview and just looking around and owning up to God's design because we are living in a world where, and this is the way it's been from the beginning, since the fall, it's been this way. We're living in a world where we are taught to be ashamed of God's design. And this is just one of the many texts that pushes us into God's design. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Let's embrace it. Let's not run from it. Let's embrace it. What, what do we have to lose? Who are we trying to impress? Like, why don't we just take God at his word and live it out? So. Yeah, and you say, who are we trying to impress? I mean, that's the bottom line. I want to walk in obedience to what God has called me and yeah. showed me is right. I'm, I'm accountable for that. Yep. And I certainly don't want to say, well, that preacher's dumb. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. march on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, people, people, people will come to different conclusions. Just base it on the text, uh, and that's my biggest concern: is just hearing so many people write it off for this reason or that reason, and you're saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! That was an abnormal interpretation that you don't do with any other passage. Why would you do that with this passage?" So that's my biggest concern: is that people base their beliefs on the text. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for me, I joined the club. Because I said, I, yeah. On the whole idea of a man being head of the household and stuff, I, I was 40 years ago, but I was at a, was doing a study, and I told the group, I says, uh, I, I don't remember exactly what, how far it came up. Anyway, I said, I'm glad. That I'm the head of the household, and my wife allows me to be that. Mm. And everybody thought that was a big joke, mm. <laughs> and I didn't say it for a joke. 
because you cannot be head of the household if you have a rebellious wife yeah. who's making decisions this way mm -hmm. and you're going this way. There's no head in it. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, mm -hmm. it's chaos. Mm -hmm. And so unless your wife is submissive, mm -hmm. it's hard to be head. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, because so then, then you turn into like a tyrant. It's an and or. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's and both. Yeah, you would have to take a, a tyrant's approach and then you would be an unsuccessful tyrant <laughs> because it just wouldn't work. Uh, it is both. That's exactly right. Yeah. Let me ask you guys this. <clears throat> what if a man, what if a, a Christian husband forbids his wife from wearing a head covering? Because the head covering represents submission to her husband. So should she rebel against her husband and wear a head covering? There's the logical conundrum for you. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> well, ultimately, I think you'll be your husband. Yeah. It's one of the God. I think that's right. Yeah. But yeah. I would certainly say, and what verse was that again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, that's a tough one. What does the text say about that? <laughs> mm -hmm. I had, we had a neighbor where he wanted her to wear it. She didn't want to wear it. Mm. So finally, she, in terms with it, so why she just wear it, so to wear it, and then he wanted her to quit wearing it. Oh, they—they they, <laughs> there was one day when they were in the same spot, and then they kept going. <laughs> so I think she somehow petitioned him, and she kept wearing it. Mm. <laughs> so what about this, like twenty-four-seven thing? Yeah. Um, should it be. A, 24-17 I don't think so. I don't see any basis for that. Uh -huh. what, what would the basis be in what you've heard growing up or whatever? What would the basis for that be? Well, some people say pray without ceasing, which I think is a very lame excuse. Yeah, I think Dean must have brought that up before you came in. Because okay. uh, yeah, my response to that, I, I can't remember who I'm borrowing this from. But uh, if it was... 24-7, that means a woman could never pray in the shower or while swimming or anything else. While being kidnapped? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You thought this out, huh? <laughs> Good job, Dory. Where's my covering? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so I think, yeah, that, that is just... Uh, or the man. Yeah, right. Yeah. Never wear anything. Yeah, and that's it. If it's 24-7 for women, that means a man's never allowed to wear a hat. Yep, that's it. Yeah, keeping the symmetry throughout. And whatever you say for a woman, you have to do the inverse for a man because that's Paul's whole yeah. instruction. Yeah, the Mennonites, they, the men wear the hat. All yeah, the yeah. Mean, and so it's, it's, it's not right. It's, it's a little weird there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if it's a symbol, who's it a symbol to? At least the angels. <laughs> but yeah, to us too. Yeah. Is, is it to the people around you. So, yeah. like the question before about should a woman wear it at home? Well, I don't know who who is going to see the symbol yeah. at home. Mm -hmm. It's not to I'll convince God. But then, like they would say, well, your neighbor might show. Yeah. Well, or hopefully they will. But again, it's not a <laughs> Paul's view here isn't a witness to the culture. Mm -hmm. Right. No, it's within the church. It's within the church. Yeah, right. But then they would say, well, just to be safe. Just to be safe. Yeah. And there's where the legalism starts. Yeah. Yes, there you go. <laughs> and, and, if, and if that was one, one woman's conviction, I think that's fine. But it's when you extend it and start insisting on others. Uh, that's, that's where we have issues. And so I, so I think there's freedom in practice, but again, not to the exclusion of the practice based on the text. I, I think you, 
if you're going to try to say based on the text, I don't, you know, men and women don't have to abide by this. Show, tell me how. Make your argument. I just don't see it. Because, yeah, I, I would feel it would be more scriptural, scriptural to uh, when worshiping or praying. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, just for uh, a woman to put something on her head. And for the man to remove whatever's right. on his head. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, Which equally powerful. Which we have that set up already for us men. Yes. You know I mean? uh, if I got up there and preached with the ball cap on, I'm sure I would get comments. I'm sure I would. <laughs> Probably not based on this passage, though. Until after today. Well, yeah. I mean, after that's, today, definitely. Yeah. With baseball bats and everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to play baseball, huh? <laughs> but then, you know, we still hang around my family quite a bit. And if we would do a, if we would do it just for the, you know, praying, uh, that would be a big issue for me. But not if you were wearing a hat. If you wore a hat, like, so you're talking about like around the dinner table. Yeah, I'm just talking more about her. Yeah, but, but, so they're rejecting the symmetry of the text. Because they would be okay with you wearing a cap or whatever. Yeah, if you not were, for praying. But not for, no, not for praying, but right. if you were out and about or yeah, whatever. That's true. Yeah. that's true, right. And so it's their inconsistency, right. not yours. Yeah. And I think they need to back it up. I mean, there's, there's a degree to which it's like, okay, I don't want to offend, but at the same time, if anyone's going to be contentious, and coming from what we do, I, I, I feel it would be more of a, you know, when you do it all the time, you don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that certainly isn't what Paul wants uh, and when he's writing to this church. So. All right. Any last thoughts or questions? I'm like so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look depressed. <laughs> Yippee! <laughs> it, and it's so funny because it's only scary or weird because it's not something that Western churches, especially in America, have upheld. Like, can you imagine if we were from a line of churches who didn't practice baptism and now we're saying this is something we need to do. That would seem really weird. Uncomfortable. It would be uncomfortable. You're telling me we gotta all go down to a pond or something and you're gonna dunk me in the pond? Bring me out and I should invite people to like come and talk about it and stuff and we should have pictures? Like, this is weird. And you're gonna give me a certificate that has everything on it? That is so weird. That part's a little weird. <laughs> no, I think yeah, it's I was good. gonna say we one time deal. <laughs> Communion would seem weird if we didn't do communion. Yeah, we don't get a certificate for that. It's, it's ongoing. It's not once. So, like, y'all give certificates when I do. Yeah, I think it's good, especially for kids. We like to do it for kids. I like to give them a little, a little thing. So maybe we could have a party or. <laughs> we started doing a party type thing when somebody was baptized because partially because the Mormons make such a big deal 
And we thought, well, you know, it's kind of sad. We You're not going to show us up. We just dunk them and send them down the road, you know. It's a life-changing decision. Yeah. Yeah, and it's an important time in their life. So yeah. we decided we wanted to celebrate. So when somebody got baptized, yeah. we'd have a meal or a cake or something in, in, in a fellowship time afterwards yeah. just to celebrate that. Yeah. Or when they give their heart to Jesus, you know, God. Yeah. yeah. Like that book. I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, the it's it's strange because, well, no, we'll go down that that some other time. Are there any other thoughts or questions on First Corinthians eleven before we finish out? Hope this has been helpful. And again, I, I'm in process too. It's not like I've known this for a long time and I'm just you know throwing it all out there. It's like this the last three weeks I've really had my conviction shaped on this. So a lot of learning still left to do. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Appreciate everyone being here for your questions too. That's good. You want to pray?